0: for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Today's teaching comes from First Kings. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went on a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time, touched him, and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came, and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael, king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel-Meholah, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000, in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. This is the word of God for the people of God.
1: Thanks be to God. Y'all can take a seat. Show our appreciation to Gabriel here for pronouncing those words for us. <clears throat> well, today is the last Sunday in the season of Epiphany, and Epiphany ends with Transfiguration Sunday. And uh, Transfiguration Sunday shows up twice in the church calendar. One at the end of Epiphany, and then the other back in—it'll be up in August for the Feast of the Transfiguration. One of the texts assigned to us for today comes from Mark's Gospel, where Peter, James, and John go with Jesus up a high mountain, and it says that Jesus was transfigured before them. It's a mysterious, esoteric kind of phrase here. That Jesus, in the glory that He bore before His incarnation, uh, was, was able to be seen in this way to the naked eye. Peter, James, and John see Him in His glory. And as Jesus is transfigured before them, two other people appear, Moses and Elijah, symbolizing the law and the prophets show up, and they're wrapped in their attention, looking at Jesus and listening to Jesus. The disciples are dumbstruck at what they're seeing And they're caught up in a swirl of emotion and confusion. And how do we make sense of this? And a cloud descends on the mountain. And as the cloud clears, the Scriptures say they only saw Jesus. And a voice came from above saying, This is my Son whom I love. Listen to Him. So it is interesting. If it feels like we just talked about the transfiguration, it's because we did in August. Max preached on this. And it's kind of like at the beginning of the year, the the end of the season of Epiphany, we start with this time of remembering the transfiguration, that Jesus is the one to whom the law and the prophets point. And it's like, as we begin this year, let's remember to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. And as we near the end of the year in August, it's like a check-in kind of conversation. Amidst the fog and the busyness of the Christian life, are we keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus? Are our ears open to the things that Jesus wants to say to us? One of the other texts assigned to us for today is this one from 1 Kings chapter 19, which is perhaps a story that you've heard before, or maybe you've heard the story of the chapter before it, where Elijah has this mountaintop experience. So, to catch you up in what's going on in the preceding chapter, Uh, The prophet Elijah, who looms large in the imagination of of the people of God, Elijah is a big-time prophet, has a showdown with uh, the prophets of Baal. The people of Israel, the, the, the kingdom had been divided into two. It's called Israel to the north and Judah to the south. The kingdom of Israel was being led at the time by a king named Ahab, who married poorly, a woman named Jezebel, and together they were a wicked couple, and not in like a cool sense. They were legitimately evil, wicked people. And together, they, they let their hearts follow whomever they wanted. They didn't serve their father David in, in covenant loyalty to Israel's God, to Yahweh. Instead, they, they followed the idols of the Baals and the Ashtoreths. There's this line that's repeated throughout uh, First and Second Kings. It says, they worshiped idols under every spreading tree on an every high hill. And uh, the people, these kings who were given the responsibility of leading God's people, were leading them astray to follow false gods. And Elijah, the prophet of Yahweh, is sent to this final confrontation in, in 1 Kings chapter 18, and they have a real-time player-versus-player player showdown. And Elijah sets the terms of it. So, okay, you 400 prophets of Baal, you make an altar, prepare a sacrifice, and then I want you to call down fire from your gods, and then you take a turn, and then I'll take a turn, and we'll see how it goes. So the the prophets of Baal are up first, and they build their altar, and the beginning in the morning, they cry out to the Baals, to the Ashtoreths, send down fire from heaven and consume the offering that's there on the altar. And all day long, they're crying out, they're flagellating themselves, they're cutting themselves to try to get the attention of their gods, and Elijah's sitting back with his feet crossed with a toothpick cleaning his teeth and saying, hey, how do you guys think it's going so far? Finally, they give up in exasperation, and Elijah, it's his turn, and he calls on the opposition, I want you to soak my altar in water three times over, and they get these big old honking jars of water, they pour it all over the offering, and Elijah steps to the side and says, Lord God of Israel, who keeps His covenant, bring honor to yourself today and prove to them that I am your prophet and that you are truly the God most high, fire from heaven comes down and consumes the offering on the altar in spite of the water, consumes the wood that it was placed on and even the stones. And vindicated in the eyes of all the people, Elijah calls to put to death the prophets of Baal. And he's vindicated, he he wins this big showdown in front of all the people. Well, when Ahab and Jezebel find out what has happened, they're incensed, they're humiliated, and they call for Elijah's death, and the, and the, the guy gets on the run. And this is where we pick up in 1 Kings chapter 19. He, he's, he's had this great moment where God has declared him in the right before all the people. But now he's on the run. He's fearing for his own life. And what happens for Elijah next is a pattern of behavior that though we may not live out the exact specifications of what he lived, we follow the same patterns today. I hope that as we talk about it, it'll be a point of encouragement for you. The text tells us Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. Beersheba is like the southernmost part of the kingdom of Judah. Dan is at the very top, Beersheba is at the very bottom. He's gone into the wilderness, getting out of Ahab's jurisdiction, getting as far away from the threat as he can. He gets there, he leaves behind his helper, while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, and he sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors'. The NIV says that uh, he's had enough, I've had enough, but it could also have been translated, it's too much. This is all too much what I've been through. And I can imagine those words, if not directly expressed, are felt in our hearts at times that we feel like, golly, there is just too much for me to bear. Financial stressors, family stressors, friends stressors—the uh, the fears of just what it's like to be a person right now in our world. It is easy for one to think and feel, this is just too much. Elijah is overwhelmed with the pressure of staying faithful when it sure feels to him like no one else is trying to do it. When he says, "I'm no better off than my ancestors," it could be a way of him saying, "Like I would be better off dead." It could also be a way of saying, like, look at this prophetic ministry that I've inherited. Every generation seems to try to kill off the prophets. Have we made no progress as a people? Am I spinning my tires and wasting my energy because these people are stiff-necked and unwilling to listen? And then he ends with, dramatically, I just wish I could die. And this is a pattern of behavior, although it may not always end there for us, that's familiar to us. We have some kind of big event that happens for us. Now, interestingly, this can be a negative event. People are trying to take your life. It can be quite a positive event, simultaneously for him, this one was. He's vindicated before all the people. But there's some kind of event, precipitating event that happens in our life after which we feel a vulnerability hangover. Do you guys know this term? Vulnerability, hangout. it's probably, I think it's Brene Brown, but it's the idea that I have put myself out there before the world and I am feeling very exposed right now. You did something that other people were able to see, even even in a small way, maybe you signed up for something or you made a statement you took a position on something and now the world knows this is what you think, this is where you are. You're feeling very left out in the open. The big event followed by the vulnerability, hangover, often leads to these feelings of being overwhelmed. It is just too much. It's more than I can bear. And Elijah does what many of us do unhelpfully, unhealthily at times as we begin to isolate ourselves. We withdraw from others. Now, looking at the story like this, many of us know what this feels like. Being exposed Feeling like, whether it's reality or not, there are a lot of eyes on us, a lot of people listening to us, feeling overwhelmed with the weight of bearing it all or cleaning all of it up, being overwhelmed, and then the natural thing that we do is to withdraw and isolate ourselves. We withdraw from others, we're left to ourselves. Many people in this room have gone through this kind of cycle, but they've never come back from it. It could be that you are regularly in the presence of others, but you've never opened up again your interior life to other people because of what happened. That there came a moment for you where you, if not literally withdrew, you emotionally, relationally withdrew from people, and no one really knows you anymore. You may constantly be in the company of people. You may be known of by many people, but few know you intimately, because you've withdrawn, you've perennial, perennially removed yourself. And that is a, a tough place to stay, an unhealthy place to stay. As the text continues, God is keeping his eyes on Elijah in this, this journey of isolating himself from other people, and God tends gently to him in his emotional state. It says, he lay down under the bush and fell asleep, and all at once an angel touched him and said to him, get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and lay down again, and the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you." I appreciate this story reminds me a little bit of the story of Hagar. If you remember Hagar in Genesis, where Hagar has been mistreated by God's people, and she goes on the run. She's the first person in Scripture, named, significantly a woman, who names God, you're the God who sees me. God says to her, I see you and cares for her. God also sees Elijah here alone in the wilderness, and He deals tenderly with him. God encounters Elijah who has exhausted himself in the Lord's service, and I have to think for Elijah, it must have been very validating to hear God echo back to him the words that Elijah said of himself. He said, this is too much. And God through the angel says, what you've been dealing with is just too much. And God cares for him with a very ordinary mercy. God makes him a meal. He wakes up to the bread baking. Imagine the scent of being in the desert and famished, smelling the bread and seeing the jug of water. God provides for him. Uh, I keep getting targeted with this one particular Instagram video—I don't know if it's a message or something—but uh, this woman is like um, talking to herself. She's person A and person B, and uh, playing person A. She goes, "I am just so depressed right now, and I don't have any idea why." And person B is like, "Well, have you had any food? No. Have you had any water? No. Have you exercised recently? Well, no, not really. Have you gotten enough sleep? No. Have you gone outside? Have you talked to anybody? No, no, no." And they're like, "Hmm." And you don't have any idea why you might be depressed. Well, here's Elijah. He's not done with his journey yet. He's not yet reached his final destination, but God sustains him with a meal. And the text tells us that Elijah retreats even further into himself and into the wilderness and makes his way to Horeb, which should be familiar. It's also known to us as Sinai. Sinai. So he got up, he ate, drank, and strengthened by the food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. Do you remember what happened at Horeb, mountain of God, Sinai? This is where Moses, having run away into the wilderness to escape what he had been through in Egypt, having killed an Egyptian, is tending the flocks of his father in law, Jethro. And there in the distance as he makes his way onto the mountain of God, a bush appears to burn and yet is not consumed. And there God reveals his divine name to Moses and his divine plans to Moses. Moses would later lead God's people out of slavery in Egypt and they would find themselves again at Horeb, the mountain of God, where in smoke and fire God descended on the mountain, established Israel as a nation, giving him their law so they would be set apart from all of the nations of the earth. They would, they would bear witness to God's lordship over all the world. Well, Elijah has found himself retreating to this place, to Horeb. He went into a cave and spent the night, and the word of the Lord came to him saying, What are you doing here, Elijah? Now, I could be wrong, but in my reading of this, in my imaginative reading of this, I think, why is he here? I see Elijah as imaginatively revisiting the good old days in the faith of this community. Horeb, obviously, was the burning bush, the Ten Commandments. Uh, Elijah is going back both literally and metaphorically to a past that he wishes he could recreate. And in his present vulnerability, he's idealizing the way that things used to be, and he's forgetting some of the drama and the bad things that happened even there at the mountain of God. So he had this big event, he had this vulnerability hangover, this feeling of too much, he'd isolated himself, but now he finds himself yearning for an idealized past. Like looking back to, man, I wish it could be like it used to be. Um, I, a really important moment in my life, uh, this was a theme for me, it was yearning for this idealized past. I remember when I was halfway through seminary, some of you have heard this story, um, I, I, was, I, was, I had gotten my undergrad in, in kind of an academic theology, and now I was doing more academic theology and Bible stuff, and it was really complicating my life with God, complicating my prayer life, whereas I could just kind of pour out my heart. Now I'm trying to pour out my heart in a theologically correct way. <laughs> and being in ministry, praying in the company of other people, I'm like trying to pray in such a way that's like, like Ooh, he's really getting his money's worth this, that seminary education. And I was, feel, I was at, at uh, Asbury Theological Seminary in Wilmore, Kentucky, just feeling like, man, I wish I could go back to the days when I loved God from a truly pure heart. There was nothing that looked even remotely like a transactional relationship with God. I'm like leading worship and doing Bible studies and praying. I was a very zealous teenager because I just loved God. Thursday nights, I would get out, get out the school directory and call people at our schools and, hey, we're going to do devotions tomorrow morning, and invariably three people would come. And, uh, and I was just feeling worthless. Like, I don't love God like I used to. And I went to this uh, a midday communion service. And at the service, they had assigned a reading, and I'm like, good, I need something good. I need, I need a pep talk from Jesus here. And they assign a reading from Ecclesiastes. The end of a matter is better than the beginning, and the day of your death better than the day of your birth. I like, come on. What am I going to do with that, God? And in receiving communion that day, I felt like the Holy Spirit said to me, don't try to recreate the past. The end is better than the beginning. In a way that only the Lord can do, I just felt this release in my spirit, and I bawled my eyes out like, like I knew I needed to. That's not really natural. I'm more like pin it all up and feel it on the inside, but don't let it out to the world. And I just wept and wept, and I went next door, fetal position, on the ground for half an hour, just crying. And I go, go back to that moment and that experience so many times when... Even now, like I look back to a moment that it's like, oh, I wish we could be there. Or I wish I could feel the way that I did then in my life with God. And the Spirit reminds me, don't try to recreate the past. This is what Elijah is trying to do. He's yearning for that idealized past. And God finally tees up with him the conversation that they ultimately need to have. The word of the Lord came to Elijah saying, what are you doing here? Think of all these people throughout scripture who've run from God. Think of the prophet Jonah. He's in the boat with these people on his way to Tarshish and God's like, "What are you doing here?" Think of Adam and Eve hiding in the bushes. "Where are you? What are you doing here?" And the word of the Lord comes to Elijah asking the same question and Elijah replies, "I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty." The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Elijah is recounting to God on being asked the question, what are you doing? He's recounting what he's been through, and he's doing it with a little bit of exaggeration. He's like, he's very much in his feelings. You don't want to be around Elijah when he's in his feelings. You don't really want to be around John Odom when he's in his feelings either, to tell you the truth. He's a little bit grandiose and is thinking he is exaggerating. He's like, I'm literally the only one left who loves and serves God. His internal life is swirling. I get it. <laughs> from the perspective of someone who has isolated himself from the community and even run away, he's feeling very grim about things. He's had this big event. He's feeling the vulnerability hangover. It's all a bit too much. He's isolated himself. He's yearning for the past, and now he's catastrophizing the present and the future. Things could not be more terrible. And we tend to do the same thing when we get in our feelings, not to disparage feelings, but when we get caught up in idealizing the past, we also sometimes catastrophize the present and the future. When things are difficult and we get overwhelmed, we just want a release valve somewhere. And God, seeing that Elijah is is lost in his own head, recognizes he needs to draw him out and he tells Elijah, I'm going to pass by in front of this cave just like I did for Moses. I'm going to pass by. And Elijah's like, this is what I signed up for. He goes to the mouth of the cave. He's ready to experience something great for God, from God. And this mighty wind comes and it destroys the mountain. The text says that God was not in it. And then there was a great earthquake that shook the mountain, but God was not in it. And then fire descended on the mountain, but God was not in it. But finally, in the calm after the storm, there was the sound of fine silence. And Elijah, recognizing that he was in the presence of God, cloaked his hood, and he stilled himself. If you've ever experienced a moment which perhaps you can't explain, you can't empirically verify, but you just sensed that you were in the presence of God at some of the most precious moments in one's life, and Elijah, not in these huge demonstrative ways like he might have requested or hoped for, but in the stillness after the storm, finds himself In the presence of God, finds the Lord asking him this question again, Elijah, what are you doing here and now? We get the sense that Elijah was practicing this speech this whole way to Horeb because he gives us the same answer that he gave last time. God says, why have you isolated yourself? Why have you run? Why are you revisiting the past? He says, God, I'm the only one left, and they're going to kill me. And God responds to Elijah's big feelings with the advice that he probably did not want. The Lord said to him, Elijah, go back. Go back the way you came. And then he gives him some rather specific instructions. He says, I want you to anoint so-and-so king over this place. And I want you to anoint this guy over this place. And I want you to go find Elisha and make him the successor of your ministry. You've worked really hard. It's kind of eerily, it's just kind of oddly specific points of instruction, but anointing someone to be a leader is like the bread and butter of Old Testament prophetic ministry. It's like, all right, it's Monday morning, I've had my coffee, what do I need to do? All right, I need to go anoint some people to lead. That's what you do as you're a prophet. No massive or dramatic move is here. And God assures Elijah that the things that he's currently fretting about, the things that are keeping him up at night, will sort themselves out in the faithful like doing of his work with God. It's not going to require a windstorm or earthquake or fire level intervention, but in the quiet unfolding of God's plans, all things will be made right, and the thing that you're most afraid of is going to take care of itself. And then he reminds him, verse 18, he says, Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. Elijah had been in this catastrophizing pattern where he had this big event, this public showdown, the vulnerability hangover that came after, these feelings of it being too much, isolated himself, yearning for the past, catastrophizing about the present and the future. And this is how God responds to Elijah and deals gently with him. First, God responds with basic provision. It's like, Elijah, buddy, have you eaten any food today? Let me make you a sandwich. Elijah, have you had any water today? You're in the desert. Let's take care of your body. Elijah, you look tired. Why don't you take a nap? God responds to him with very basic provision. In the course of this interaction at Horeb, God responds with the assurance of ordinary intervention. Go home, do the work of a prophet, anoint people to lead, do what I tell you, and the thing that you fear will not come to pass. I'm going to sort this out quietly. In verse 18, in this reminder of the 7,000 people, what God is doing is reminding them of the truth that though you feel alone in this moment, you are not alone. When you go home, you're going to find there's 7,000 people who have yet to bow the knee to to the false gods and who are still on my team. Get out of the muck that's in your brain and see the reality. Remember the truth. You are not alone. And into his isolation where Elijah has withdrawn himself from the people, he says, I didn't send you here. I sent you to those people. I want you to go back. I want you to return to the community for which I appointed you." Now I I know in a room like this, partially because I know the stories of the people in this room, that this pattern of, of something that happens that feels like it just defines us, puts us on a trajectory toward isolation and fear and imagining and thinking the worst. And many of us withdraw and isolate ourselves from others. And perhaps some of you are here today and you find yourself in this pattern right now of vulnerability and feeling overwhelmed and isolated and fearing the worst. And I wonder if God wouldn't say to you, friend, you're hungry. Come and eat the meal that I've prepared for you. Or friend, isn't it time that you gave yourself permission to take a nap? There's a book called The Rest of God by Mark Buchanan on the Sabbath. And one of the things that Buchanan says that I think is really interesting and provocative is is he says that there's some aspects of God's being and personality that we can't have access to unless we're rested, that there's something about restlessness that alters and distorts our worldview, even our ability to see God, and there's something about rested, living into these rhythms of work and rest that God prescribes for us that gives us access to who He is. Maybe God would say, you're hungry, come and eat. Or perhaps God would say to you, you're afraid, but I will tend to your fears in my own quiet and faithful ways. You're worried about your family, your finances. You're fearful about the election and what that represents for this country or for the world. God would remind you, am I not guiding creation toward its intended end? Does my son not sit in the throne as Lord and ruler over all creation? You're afraid, but I will tend to your fears in my own quiet and faithful way. Or perhaps God would say to you, you're believing lies. Come and let me remind you of the truth. Or maybe God would say, you've isolated yourself. Isn't it time to go back to the people to whom I've sent you? The moment that for me is uh, i relate the most deeply to this cycle toward isolation and catastrophizing was in april of 2020 Um, we had been through a a heck of a six to eight month period as a church um, transitioning out of our mother church joining a new denomination Emily and I had a deep personal loss. We lost a baby at 15 weeks, and it was a busy, busy season. We, we transitioned into, into Anglicanism. Our, our church community had a very deep and sudden and tragic loss. Um, we held a funeral for our church community, and then on March 14th, the city of Tulsa shut down. March 15th, Ben and I are sitting in front of a laptop streaming services for the first Sunday of quarantine. And about a month and a half after all of uh, quarantine began, I, I went into the office on a Friday. I'd been alone a lot. A lot of us had been alone a lot. What I'm describing, you get. And just in the, the quiet of, of no one to talk to, grief caught up with me of our personal losses, our, our, our church's losses, which were deep losses to us personally personally the exhaustion of having, like, walked with the church through this transition into a new denomination, Uh, the isolation that came from from not being around friends and family, and just the the annoyance of preaching to a camera, which stinks. Preaching to a camera stinks. And it was a Friday, and I had nothing for a Sunday sermon. Not only did I, like, I had nothing in the tank, I I didn't want to work on it. And I went home early, and I got on the bed, and I'm staring, I'm like boring a hole in the ceiling, catatonic with just anger, grief, loneliness, exhaustion, and I'm just mad. And Emily came in to check on me and says, like, how are you doing? I said, Emily, not only do I not want to preach Sunday, I never want to preach again if I can help it. And I'm just in my feelings, in a big way. And bless Emily Odom, uh... If I were at least more demonstrably emotional, generally, it'd be easier to work with, but it's pretty hard to deal with a catatonic with anger kind of person, which is more my style. (laughs) And she says, I can tell that you don't want to talk, but if there's anyone that you're willing to just reach out to, you should do that. (laughs) Don't give me advice. And uh, she was right. She's always right. Emily, glorious in all her ways. And <laughs> so I texted a handful of friends. And I said, listen, I don't want to talk to you at all. <laughs> I do not want to share this at all. But I'm feeling pretty dark. The world's feeling pretty dark to me right now. And I've never said things like I never want to preach again. This is like my greatest, like one of my great joys. getting through this. And so, I don't want to talk. Please don't ask me questions, but will you just pray for me? And uh, just in reaching out and getting voice memos from buddies, just praying for me, it's like the clouds parted just enough for a ray of sunlight to come in, and it's like, okay, I can, I can breathe a little bit. I did preach, Lord knows what it was. No one remembers a single sermon from COVID, but uh but It happened. And I just wonder, thinking about the processes that many of us are in, of whatever happened to you, good or bad, and just the journey toward isolation that so many of us find ourselves prone to be on, idealizing the past, catastrophizing the present and the future. Gosh, Lord knows, like, there's some really hard things that people in this community have dealt with. I say it regularly, and I don't intend to be cliche, but you really, honestly, have no idea what the people seated to your left and right are going through. You have no idea the vulnerabilities that they bear and the difficulties of being a person that is for them. And I just wonder, for all of us, how many of us are are one call, one text, one prayer, one bit of honest communication away from the kind of community that we long for One word of honest communication away from the breakthrough in our life with God that we so need. Finally ending the stalemate of our silence and our isolation and and expressing to other people, I've allowed myself to get here. Would you help call me home? Man, if I could remember the lyrics, I would quote it right now. But Ben, show me this song by Andrew Peterson, shine your light on me. But just finding himself in a place where things could not get more grim, and he felt the prayers of his wife and his people calling him back home. I wonder if there isn't a breakthrough or, or a sense of relief and release for many of us in this room who just need one moment of courage and a little bit of honest communication to, to let others know, I've allowed myself to be on the other side of the wilderness and I don't know how to get home. Would you help walk me home? And for all of us on this Transfiguration Sunday, we've gathered together in worship, we gathered around the table because we want something from God. I wonder if all of us couldn't hear the voice of Jesus saying, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am humble and gentle in spirit, and in me you will find rest for your souls." And Jesus, now glorified and seated at the right hand of the Father, who bears in His body the scars and the vulnerabilities of His suffering, is strong enough to take my prayers and yours and hold them in the strength of His own. Jesus, who lives to intercede for us, is eager to hear our confession and our request for help. And remember the words of James, who said, if any of you lack wisdom, let them ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. Meaning, when we in humility ask for God's help, without shame or judgment, it's His delight to send wisdom, to send help to those who ask for it. And so today, as we come to the table, if you find yourself needy and in a position of vulnerability, you are perfectly positioned to receive from the Lord. You who are hungry, come and eat the meal that He has prepared for you. As we get ready to receive, I want to. Guide us through this centering prayer, which you've perhaps heard from me before, but is always in my back pocket, as a way of just confessing our intent and desire to draw near to God that He may draw near to us. I'm going to pray this once so you can hear the words, and then we'll pray it together and get ready to receive from the table. So we pray, loving God, I wish to sink into the silence and receive your life-giving rest. For all the demands upon me, for all the people who need my time and attention, for the situations that require my best efforts, I request help. Thank you for the ways your grace releases me from having to perform and liberates me to live freely in each moment, gently, lightly, and calmly. Let's pray it together. Loving God, I wish to sink into the silence and receive your life giving rest. For all the demands upon me, for all the people who need my time and attention, for all the situations that require my best efforts, I request help. Thank you for the ways your grace releases me from having to perform and liberates me to live freely in each moment. Gently, lightly, and calmly. Amen. Lord, I pray that you, in your mercy, would pour out your spirit on us gathered here. Come, Holy Spirit, and manifest your presence among your people today. Pour out your Spirit on these gifts of bread and wine. Make them be for us the body and the blood of Christ so that we may be for the world the body of Christ redeemed by His blood. Lord, you know the, the desires and the fears and the vulnerabilities and joys of each of us. And I pray that you would make yourself known to all who are open to your work. Lord, together we renounce the forces of the enemy and all the kingdom of darkness that lays itself against the people of God. And we invite the rule and the reign of God in our lives and in our church. Lord, I pray that you deliver us, those of us who are stuck and lost in our own heads, those of us who are stuck in our sin. I pray that you'd stretch out your hand and heal those, Lord, who are sick that you'd speak to those who are dying for a word from you and that you would assure all of us with the good comfort of your presence. Lord, as we come to the table now, we come needy and we come hungry and we come hopeful that you are the one who prepares the table before us, even in the presence of our enemies. So come and may our souls and our bodies feast on the light and the life of Jesus who gave himself for us. As I pray in the name of the Father and the Son,